Okay, if you would please turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 11. I'll be reading Luke 11, verses 1 through 4. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when He finished, one of His disciples said to Him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught His disciples. And He said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallow Your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. And forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation. Father, I pray that we be protected from the temptation not to take this prayer for our lives seriously. But by Your grace, would You work on us, in us, and through us the sanctifying, assuring grace of our salvation in Jesus Christ. And therefore, to that end, help me speak what is there in the text to the glory of Your name. Amen. This is the second week of the Lord's Prayer, or really the disciples' prayer that Jesus taught us his disciples, this outline on how you approach the Father, these core things. In the first sermon, we dealt only with the first two requests, the vertical. Father, hallow your name. Make your name be honored and glorified in the earth and let your kingdom and your reign come. This morning we look at the final three requests, the horizontal ones. For our daily provision, for our forgiveness of sins, and for our protection over our hearts. Jesus speaks to every person who belongs to Him in this prayer. And and He says essentially this, My Father is your Father. Therefore, pray like this, guys. Abba, Daddy, cause your name to be hallowed in the earth, in my church, in my family, in my life. Cause your kingdom, your reign to come, particularly over my heart. And then the third request we are to make, verse 3. Give us each day our daily bread. Now, literally in the Greek, Father, give to us each day our epiousion, bread. Give us bread, and then he, he modifies it. But that epiousion word has baffled scholars. We scratched their heads over because we can't find that word in any other Greek literature of the era. So, so 
That's how you find out how words are being used. And so what does it really mean? And different ideas of what the word might mean are something like, okay, you're going to give us each day our bread. What kind of bread? Our bread for tomorrow, maybe. Or our bread for today. Or something like just our daily, our necessary, our essential bread. That's the prayer. But I think that's at the core of what he means. We even use the term, at least in American English, you know, who's the bread winner? We use bread that way. Meaning, not merely the stuff that you gather from what grows and cook up, but it's the bread. It's the bread of life. It's your daily necessary stuff. Give to us our basic needs, our provision, each day. This prayer that Jesus is telling us to pray, I think, is particularly meant to call to mind the manna in the wilderness. God could have given them seeds, or they could have figured out, He can give them all kinds of stuff, but He could have given them bread to find on the ground every morning, make loaves, could have lasted a week, but He decided to say, just, just take daily provision. Go to sleep at night, trusting me that it will be there tomorrow, each day. It's as if Jesus is saying to us, His sheep, wake up to reality. Your Father in heaven is sovereign. And you are, whether you realize it or not. Whether you have much or little, you are Utterly dependent upon Him. Prove that to Nebuchadnezzar who had much, didn't he? Yeah. This prayer right here is daily Christianity. You know, within the church, some of us have been around long enough. I just, just say, forget about those people that over-spiritualize the Christian life. As if it's all happening here on Sunday morning with a, with a minister, with a preacher, with some type of aura. That's not Christianity. This is the essence of true spirituality. You wake up and you mean it. Father, give to me. Because it's utterly dependent upon you whether I eat or have clothes or have gasoline in the car. Give to me my basic material needs. I am utterly Dependent upon you. Even for the strength that allows me to go to work and to earn money in order to pay rent or my mortgage or food or clothing or my kids' schooling. It really is your doing. If you ever wrestle with, as a Christian, this common cultural thing of giving thanks for the food on your table... Don't wrestle anymore. Realize, I'm thanking Him because He did give it this day to me. That's what James says, isn't it? One seventeen. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. Coming down from the Father of lights. Pray. Father, each day give us our essential, necessary needs. Then the fourth request. And forgive us 
our sins. Just as bread is our basic need for our physical body and our physical living here on earth, so pardon from our sins is an essential daily need for our souls. Because all of us have sinned, and as disciples of Christ who have come to faith in Him, still sin. As believers in Jesus, those who are justified before Him. Meaning, legally, the guilt of our sin has been taken away by being paid for in Jesus Christ. We have an assurance that we can come in this prayer, like Jesus says, Abba, our Daddy, to the judge of the universe because of what Christ did on the cross. Our debt has been paid by Him. But here, Jesus, the one who paid our debt, says to us that we are to ask for that sin today. Father, forgive me. Be open about it. In order to receive a type of cleansing of our conscience before Him. Our Savior from sin in His substitutionary sacrifice essentially says to us who have come to Him, because of me, you can pray, Abba, Daddy. And as you pray, you can be dead honest, open, in your closet with Him about every sin, every thought. You can be safe in your honesty and openness with Him in confessing your sins. Isn't that what First John says to us? If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But if we say that we have not sinned, we make Him a liar. And His Word is not in us. What a Gospel. He is righteous. What? That's my doom. If I sin, I'm guilty. But He is righteous because He sent His Son. And He meted out the punishment for all believers' sins. On Him. And therefore, when we confess in our relationship to Him daily, He is righteous to not deny His Son in His work, but to cleanse you from all sin. Then, the last request. And lead us not into temptation. What is that? I mean, to get it exactly... What Jesus is telling us to pray for, I think, is a little tricky. Here's why. We are asking, Father, please, don't guide me here. Don't lead me into... Into what? The answer is, Perasmon. Don't lead me into Perasmon. That's the Greek word that translated temptation or could be translated trial 
or, or testing or something like that. But to get, to get a feel at the difficulty of this word and what, what is he really asking us to pray for, let me just give you some taste how that same word is used in the New Testament. In James chapter 1, verses 13 to 14, James writes, Let no one say when he is tempted. Okay, This is the verb form of the same word. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot tempt with evil. He doesn't. And he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted. It's all the same form of the word. Tempted when he or she is lured and enticed by their own lust. Okay? So here's, here's see the problem here. Now, if Jesus meant the word to be understood in that way, then why does he tell us to pray to the Father not to do what he cannot do? Or, if you just look up in James chapter 1, a few verses to verses 2 and 3, we read, Count it all joy. Okay, the, the, ultimately, this is a good thing here, right? Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet perusmon. Same word. When you meet, it's in the plural, perusmoi. Trial. Of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Or in First Peter. Peter writes, In this, in the gospel, the truth, and what's laid up for you in the future, you rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been, and now here's pain, here's pain, you have been grieved by various perusmas. And then he goes on to say how that is ordained of God for the development of your faith. That your faith gets strengthened like gold gets strengthened in fire. How? Through perusmon. So if Jesus meant perusmon in that sense of developing our faith, then why should we pray for the Father to spare us from those experiences that are ultimately good for us? What's he saying then? I think at the core of what he means by do not lead us into temptation is that in the midst of all this pain, in the midst of grief, in the midst of the test, we are saying, protect my heart from caving to sin in it. In other words, lead us not into temptation is a figurative way of speaking. It's expressing something by the means of using the negative, negating something else. You know, we do this in language all the time, right? You're sitting there reading a book and they say, there were not a few people there, right? What do they mean? It's a negative way expressing positively there were many people there. When we say, Father, lead me not into temptation, we are saying, in other words, positively, lead me into righteousness that, that I may stand, that I may not cave into sin in the midst of trial. In other words, Father, 
lead us into the opposite of caving into sin, which is to walk in righteousness. So our daily pattern of prayer should be an acknowledgement. This is what I think Jesus is getting at. This is the blessing that He gives us when He tells us to pray this way. In your prayer before your Father, it's a daily acknowledgement of your weakness. If He were to not protect your heart actively, you would immediately fall to the temptations of sins. It is an admission of our daily dependence on Him to even trust Him, to obey Him. One commentator, Garland, trying to sum up this, this prayer request here, does it this way, quote, This line here contrasts with the attitude of Peter when Jesus warns him at the Last Supper that he will be sifted by Satan. Peter responds, in essence, (laughs) Bring it on! No, I won't! Jesus is saying, don't ever do that. Yes, you will. Unless... Unless, Peter, I've prayed for you ultimately that after you sin, you're going to repent. He, he goes on, Garland. By contrast, Jesus' attitude on the Mount of Olives when He prays for the cup to be removed. Jesus, the sinless ones, and if you could, He felt it. Remove what you have in front of me if you could. But if you can't, your will be done. He's praying for strength to stay. Now, I left something out of this passage so far, haven't I? Hopefully you know that. You reading your Bible? I want to go back to verse 4 and read what I had passed over, the very alarming text. And forgive us our sins, Father, For we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. Here's Jesus, the sin bearer, the one who paid for our forgiveness. He says to every born again person, every person who has fled for refuge in Him is their Savior. He says, pray this way. Father, forgive me my sins. The sins I, this sin I committed today. That's for, because, that's what the word means. Gar in Greek. For, here's the reason. Because I am forgiving everybody who's hurt me. Who sins against me. As a Christian, This text is saying that our confidence before the Father to cleanse us and to forgive us for our sins is somehow and in some way connected to how we deal with those people.
people who personally hurt us. Every one of us who profess Christ as our Savior, we must give ear to Jesus here. So, why does he say this? Why does Jesus say, I'll tell you how daily to speak to the Father. Why does he put that in there? Here, here's my shot at it. Because the miracle of salvation, the miracle of having your, your heart come alive to the gospel of Jesus Christ, the miracle of new birth, new life in Christ, and receiving your eternal pardon forever for your sin. When that happens to a human being and that faith is real, the point is this, Jesus is just saying, those people, those genuine, real Christians, forgive others. They are a forgiving people. That's what I think it means. It doesn't mean they don't struggle with it. It doesn't mean that now as dogs bark, as birds fly, no, just no problem, that the Christians just easily forgive. It doesn't mean that. But it does mean that that struggle is a sign. That, that desire, I want to, and I'm struggling, is a sign of the genuineness of your relationship with Christ. The warning, though, that Jesus is clearly giving in the midst of the prayer is for those who claim to be a Christian. I profess Christ. Yes, I'm a Christian. I'm going to heaven. And they ongoingly, week after week, month after month, year after year, refuse to forgive other people and have no desire to. Now, there's one other par parallel to, uh, in, in the Scripture to Luke's, the Lord's Prayer, and that's Matthew. And, and, and I argued a few weeks back that I, I think Jesus gave this model on differing occasions. So when we turn to Matthew in Matthew chapter 6, verse 12 there, Jesus says essentially the same thing in the Lord's Prayer. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Again, you see, Jesus is the request, Father, forgive me my sin, my debts, is connected to do it as I am doing it to others. Now, in Luke, the because... I am forgiving everyone who's indebted to me, is a present tense verb. In Luke, there's this emphasis on, not very just one time here, one time there, there's something about my way of life. In the Greek, the present tense is not only, it's present right now going on, but it's this continual action. Because in my life, in my continual action, I am forgiving others.
then, if you are in Matthew, he gives us something Luke doesn't. Jesus, would you elaborate a little bit on why you tell us to pray this way? This is exactly what Jesus says at the very end of the Lord's Prayer. He keeps talking. For if you forgive others their trespasses, then your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. That's stunning. It's stunning because Jesus gives to the church the gift of this model prayer, and in so doing, within it, He deliberately reminds us of how much danger we are in when we are refusing to forgive those who hurt us, pain us, do evil against us. In James 2.13, The Scripture says it this way. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. And do you remember in Matthew 18 how direct Jesus was with Peter? Matthew 18, starting with verse 21, we read, Then Peter came up to him and said to him, Lord, How often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Peter thought, okay, I'm starting to get this grace thing. So he offers a a number. As many as seven times? And Jesus said, no. I do not say to you seven times, but seventy times times seven. More than you can count, Peter. And then, he's not done. Jesus goes on to tell the story of a king, a master, who has a servant. And the servant owed somewhere in the realm of, we can't imagine, in the millions of dollars and he could not had no ability to come up with the money to pay his debt to the master and his wife and his kids are going to be sold into slavery and he's going to jail and he pleaded with his master in the story please have mercy and the master says i will i wipe all of that debt out you're free never have to pay me back And then, the next week, that same guy has a fellow slave who owes him $36. And he says, pay me my money! And after that fellow slave pleaded for mercy, he refused to give it and had him thrown into prison. And I pick up. Jesus concludes His parable this way. 
Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. Finally, Jesus closes with this line. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. The point of the parable, the, the point of when Jesus, in, in, in unfolding the meaning of this section of the Lord's Prayer, when He said, but if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will my Father forgive your trespasses, is that if we hold firmly and unrepentantly to our grudges in an unforgiving spirit, we will be handed over to the tormentors. We will miss out on heaven and we will gain hell. The reason is not because we can earn heaven. The reason is not because we deserve heaven by our act of forgiving other people. It's not why. That's not the gospel. It's because ongoingly refusing to forgive ultimately for some will prove we don't really trust Christ. We don't really trust the Gospel. And see, if Jesus is our treasure, we won't be able to take from His gracious hand a forgiveness of millions of dollars of debt and then turn around and demand that we be paid back our 36 bucks from that other person. See, th this is not peripheral in the Scripture, in the New Testament. It's just, it's just everywhere. So you go back a few hundred years and one of the Puritans, Thomas Watson, who just summarized what we're seeing this morning this way when he wrote, A man can as well go to hell for not forgiving as for not believing. Huh? No, no, no. By faith you're saved. What he means there is when you look at the text that ultimately if there is ongoingly continuously, an absolute willful refusal to forgive, then just evidence that you don't really have faith. So Charles Spurgeon, in the 1800s, Baptist preacher London, wrote this, unless you have forgiven others, you read your own death warrant when you repeat the Lord's Prayer. The Apostle Paul said it this way. 
Be kind to one another. Tender-hearted. Forgiving one another. As God in Christ forgave you. See, God's forgiveness in the gospel of Christ is the foundation and the ability of our forgiving others. It is underneath, not the cause of, underneath our forgiving of others. So much so in the Bible that if we do not give that forgiveness to other people, it shows we're not trusting Him. What's the only means to receiving heaven is faith or trusting Him. And if we're not one of those people who trust the Gospel, trust Christ as our Lord, it says pray this way, it ultimately may be showing your faith is not a real faith. Thus, you miss heaven. I think that's the point. I'm not going to close the sermon yet because, wow, I think minds are spinning. So, what I've said so far now in this second part of the sermon, and what we're hearing is that forgiveness of other people in our lives is tremendously important. Now, what is it? What is forgiveness? What does it look like? And often, in trying to understand anything, you ask the other question in the negative. What is it not? So, I'm going to start this way. I'm going to go through just a few texts slowly and look at it to try to bring out what I think are, and I'm referring mainly at this point, not out here what it looks like in a lot of actions, but what's going on in our hearts concerning forgiveness first. What are the contours of a forgiving heart. First Romans 12:19 we read, believer, never avenge yourselves. But leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine I will repay. So, first, I think one of the contours of a forgiving heart means getting to the place and there's struggle through this but getting to the place where now I'm rid of thoughts of revenge. It's gone. Thank you, Lord, for working that. I don't have that need. I'm rid of thoughts of getting them back for what they did to me. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 15, we read, See that no one repays Anyone evil for evil done to them. But always seek to do good to one another. So I think a forgiving disposition in a spirit means getting rid of that yearning. Okay, I'm going to... Not just of, okay, I won't do it. But God, it would be awesome if some other human being would come along and just whack that guy down. It means getting past that. A forgiving spirit means when no one's looking, you get alone with God. 
And you pray for that person's good. That's what it looks like. Jesus said it this way. Matthew 5, 44-45. But I say to you, Love your enemies. Okay, this, guy, this person's still in a position of unreconciliation. This is an enemy. This can be really bad. This can be a person who's causing hell in your life and, and persecution and stuff that Jesus refers to. I say to you, love your enemies and pray. There it is. Be alone. Talk to me, God, and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Forgiveness means you desire reconciliation if it's possible. Romans 12, 17-18 Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, not always possible. But if it's possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. In other words, don't be the person who makes it impossible for reconciliation with another to happen. It means that with that person who has damaged you, hurt you, that if it falls to you to be a person to help them, you willingly will do it. Isn't that what we just read in First Thessalonians 5? See that no one repays anyone evil for evil. Okay, now, but, but he goes on. Not just absence of that, but always seek to do good to one another. That means the guy who's doing evil to you. Or, or Exodus, in the law of Moses, we read this in Exodus 23. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, don't laugh and say deserves him right and let it go. The law says you shall bring it back to him. So let me just summarize. At the core, the contours of a, of a heart of forgiveness is having a heart that flees from revengeful thoughts. That trust God that He's He's sovereign and He's good and He's just and you can you can believe Him for all of that. It's a heart that even really wants the best for that person who is indebted to you. It's a heart that really would love to see repentance in that person. And then, if they, in the repentance, in their acknowledgement, come and ask you to forgive them, you will willingly and happily do it. This is at the heart. Of what Jesus means, unless you forgive your brother from your heart. I just let music play for an hour, going out the time. Okay, now, what forgiveness 
is not. In, in this heart, in this forgiveness, this does not mean that forgiveness is in any way condoning of sin or taking sin and sins against you and lightly. A forgiving heart does not mean I have the absence of any anger at that horrendous sin. A forgiving heart in a Christian does not mean, that means there are no remnants of pain that were caused by the sin. I think these are the things we struggle with. Am I I forgiven? How am I still hurt? They're not the same, necessarily. See, a forgiving heart never means you've got to come to a place where you feel good about that bad thing that was happened to you. That's not what it means. I'm going to quote from John Piper to illustrate this. Quote, I was on the phone with a pastor who told me about a woman in his church who he noticed after he came to the church, she never came to communion. He probed and he found out that years earlier she had been separated from her husband because he repeatedly beat her and sexually abused the children. She said that every time she came to communion, she would remember what he had done and feel so angry at it and what it cost her children that she felt unworthy to take communion. This was over a decade later. He goes on. My friend said to her, you are not expected to feel good about what happened. Anger against sin and its Horrible consequences is fitting up to a point. But you don't need to hold on to that in a vindictive way that that desires harm for your husband. You can hand it over to him who justly judges again and again. And you can pray for the transformation of your husband. Forgiveness is not feeling good about horrible things. And the pastor encouraged her to forgive him in this way, if she had not already, and to take communion as she handed her anger over to God and prayed for her husband. Forgiveness does not mean there are no consequences to people's sin. Let me just give an illustration. A person could be mugged. That word just doesn't sound harsh enough. I mean, you know what mug is? Almost killed, beaten in the head, bleeding, and stolen from. A person can be mugged by another human being. And then later on, during the trial, somehow the mugger 
wants to meet you, the victim, and ask you, please, would you forgive me? Because there's something that happened to him or where his sorriness is genuine. A Christian is bound to forgive. And then, step into the box and testify against him to put him in prison. And because of the testimony that will put him in prison does not mean that person is unforgiving. Do you mean that a family member of a murder victim could somehow through the grace of Christ get over the seething bitterness toward that particular murderer? Even to the point that if that murderer came to a repentance and asked that family member to forgive for the pain he's caused that person, that a Christian could offer that forgiveness to him? Yes. And at the same time, show up at the parole hearings to make sure that the guy stays in prison for the rest of his life. I think it's possible. God forgave us in Christ. But that does not mean at times there are differing consequences for sin. Hebrews 12 puts it this way. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by Him. Because the Lord disciplines the one He loves and He chastises every son whom He receives. And There, that's written to Christians. So, Christians whose sins are forgiven, when it comes to the wrath of God, it is removed, gone, in the sense that you are not held guilty. And therefore to receive the punishment But it doesn't mean it in the sense where you won't receive consequential spankings. This is why Christian parents, for the sin of our children, are bound to enact discipline with children. It's why churches at times need to enact discipline upon members. It's why society enacts discipline Upon criminals. And in those actions, it does not necessarily mean that there's an unforgiving spirit. Okay. Finally, I've been talking mainly about our hearts, which is really important. I've been talking about the internal workings of forgiveness. Now, just a few words on about its outworkings, how it looks. Forgiveness of an unrepentant person looks different than forgiveness going on in the heart towards a repentant person. When in a grievance, a sin, a trespass that has happened to you, the one who did it comes to grips with that. I I did, I sinned, I blew it. And comes to you and admits it and asks, would you please forgive me? Then you say, yes! 
We're reconciled over this. This is awesome. That's under now the blood of Christ. Hey, Christian, did you forgive him? He's never asked me to. Okay, this is going to be a little tricky, I think. Jesus said this in Luke 17. If your brother sins, what's Jesus say to do? Rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. I can't hear you. Oh, Luke 17, 3 to 4. Forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the same day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, Jesus says, you must forgive him. R.C. Sproul, theologian, he observes this, quote, There is a warning I want to give. I think there's a serious misunderstanding in the Christian world about forgiveness. So often I hear people say that if anyone sins against you, you are required by God to forgive him or her unilaterally and immediately, whether the person repents or not. I don't find that in the Scriptures. Though, I do see Jesus doing that when He prayed for the forgiveness of His executioners, though they did not repent. He goes on, of course, we may forgive those who have offended us without the repentance. This is what I have been arguing up to this point. We are not to be vindictive or vengeful in our attitudes. And if someone harms me, I should be ready and willing to absorb it in the name of love. However, there are injuries that are so serious that there are provisions both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament to involve the church authorities. If someone sins against you and you go to see that person to try to bring about reconciliation, but he or she refuses to repent, there's a process that you are to follow. You are to take another person with you to see the offending party. Then, if necessary, appeal to the church. So he concludes, since God gives these measures of discipline to the church, I think it follows that we are not absolutely obligated to forgive everyone who sins against us if they remain impenitent. End quote. Now, even when a person doesn't admit the wrong, the sin that they have inflicted on us, Jesus still commands us to love our enemy. To pray for those who persecute us. When in life, in the family, 
and in church, people hurt us, we can still hope for their repentance. We can hope and pray for them and for reconciliation, even though none of that has happened yet. We can hand the anger and the pain we feel over it to God and lay down our ill wills. Okay? Let me just make this comment now. But forgiveness does not mean stupidity. It doesn't mean a lack of wisdom. There are places where what's going on in your heart doesn't mean you have to necessarily say it because that could be a lack of wisdom to say it. But at times it might be wisdom to lovingly say it. But there are times when, yes, I do forgive you. But I don't trust you yet. Oh, let me just illustrate. So, so here you are. You're, you're, you're a church woman and you're sharing your heart with another Christian sister and some touchy things and you had a nice lunch. And then you realized over the next two weeks, she gossiped. It wasn't that she, she just talked to someone. No, no, she gossiped. She even took it and she twisted things in such a way that you're thinking, did she even hear what I said? And then you, it got out and it was very painful. She sinned against you. And she finds it out and, and she comes up to you and she asks you, would you please forgive me? I'm so sorry that happened. <laughs> yes, I forgive you. A few months later, you poured out your heart to her again. And the same thing happened. And she asked you to forgive her. And you did. And then you did it again. And the same thing happened. Okay, okay. See, forgiveness doesn't mean stupidity. Stop sharing with her. You can't trust her, but you can forgive her. Okay, you take that and you apply it to all kinds of different situations. Trust. And forgiving are not synonymous. But we are to know this that what is going on in our hearts is crucial. If, even though that person's never asked forgiveness, reconciliation hasn't happened, but if what's going on in our heart is, and not only that, I'm kind of happy about that. And I wish that person would never come up and ask me to forgive them. I wish they would never admit it because I want them to die in their unrepentance. That's a bad sign about our hearts. Even if, even if that person proved themselves after many years, she can become, she's trustworthy now. She's grown, but it doesn't matter. I'll never trust her. Bad sign. That's not a forgiving spirit. And our souls are in danger. That's why back at Luke 11 now, that's why Jesus' model of, of how to pray in this structure is such a merciful good that He's given to us when He tells us, say, Father, forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. It's a mercy. Because 
It requires no complex reasoning process to determine where we are in our life. It just requires honesty. You know it. I know it. Is God at work in your heart? Think about what Jesus did with this prayer. It's amazing if we take it seriously. Think about the struggles over the years you've had since you've become a Christian with differing things of forgiveness and struggle. This is part of the Christian life. And to the extent you've taken Jesus' words seriously, okay, wake up every day now in the midst of the struggle and pray this. Father, forgive me. Because I have forgiven every oh everyone. Oh, oh come, Father, I'm, I'm, I am struggling with this. Think about the mercy he gave in this petition. It cuts through all the Christian ease and the evangelical jargon that so easily can cover uh, the real state of our heart toward God, which is reflected in our heart toward others. Are we spiritually healthy? Can we pray the Lord's Prayer? Because I am forgiving everybody who has sinned against me. Do you need to forgive your spouse? A parent? A child? fellow Christian a friend an employer an employee someone who's cheated you out of a lot of money a decade ago in a business transaction are you bitter really Really hope they get there up. The cross of Christ has forgiven all of us who trust in Him a ten zillion dollar debt. So we are to go and forgive 49 cent debts to the glory of Jesus. Father, would you, and I mean this, oh, I mean it, by such undeserved mercy, cause this prayer to be felt in all of us on a daily basis and cause the truthfulness of it to be worked out in our lives. Yes, as far as I know, I forgive. Even if there's no reconciliation, I release them and I long, Father, for that. 
work these things in us, your people. Cause assurance of this glorious salvation we have found in Christ because you found us to be experienced all the more in our dealings with one another to the glory of Christ, the great sin bearer, 